Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me our terrific lay leader, Bill Phillips, this morning, and we both welcome you all here. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services by lighting a chalice, which is a symbol of our faith. Please join me in our words for lighting the chalice, which are printed in your order of service and on the screen. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning was from a book by Dr. Brene Brown. The full title of the book is Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. The excerpt I want to use is this. True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. True belonging doesn't require you to change, change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. Over the past weeks and months, this church's board of trustees has been talking with congregants to come up with a revised version of our mission statement, our common purpose for living out our religious values. And you are here on the momentous Sunday morning when we first have the banner that has the correct wording. Let us say together our mission statement. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our reading for Time of Centering this morning is also from Dr. Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness. Theologians, writers, poets, and musicians have always used the wilderness as a metaphor to represent everything from a vast and dangerous environment where we are forced to navigate difficult trials to a refuge of nature and beauty where we seek space for contemplation. What all wilderness metaphors have in common are the notions of solitude, vulnerability, and an emotional, spiritual, and physical quest. Belonging so fully to yourself that you're willing to stand alone is a wilderness, an untamed, unpredictable place of solitude and searching. It is a place as dangerous as it is breathtaking. 
a place as sought after as it is feared. But it turns out to be the place of true belonging, and it's the bravest and most sacred place you will ever stand. The special courage it takes to experience true belonging is not just about braving the wilderness. It's about becoming the wilderness. It's about breaking down the walls, abandoning our ideological bunkers, and living from our wild heart rather than our weary hurt. Tomorrow is Memorial Day, so I'd like to begin our time for centering by remembering those who lost their lives in service to our country and those who loved them. Now, let us breathe together. Breathing together, feeling the loving presence of those around us. We follow our breath to a deeper place inside, a place of greater calmness, greater wisdom, greater love, that spark of the divine within each of us. And breathing together, we enter a time of silence together, remembering that human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of the sacred silence in this congregation. Breathing in, breathing out, we now enter that sacred silence together.
I'd like to begin today with a confession. I am still struggling myself with what I'd like to talk with you about today. I still mess up. I still get angry or hurt and make mistakes. The last time I preached, I talked about human rights activist Valerie Kaur and how she says that to build the beloved community, we have to practice revolutionary love, love that is an intentional act both brutally difficult at times and ultimately beautiful and life-giving. She says that there are three aspects of revolutionary love. We must love ourselves. We must love others who do not look like us. And we must love our opponents, even those who would harm us. It's that third one I've been struggling with. (laughs) Anyone else struggle with that one? Valerie Kaur confesses that she struggles with it too. She tells the story of the first person killed in a hate crime in retaliation for the attacks of 9-11, a close family friend of hers named Balbir Singh Sodi, who, like her, was a Sikh, S-I-K-H. Frank Roke, the killer, mistook Balbir for a Muslim because of his turban and his beard. Roke had bragged, I'm going to go out and shoot some towel heads. We should kill their children, too. Fifteen years later, she returned to the site of the shooting and was joined by Balbir's brother, Rana. They lit a candle and they mourned how little had changed over those years. Kor asked, Who have we not tried to love yet? And so, 15 years later, they called Frank Roke, who was still in prison. They asked him at one point why he had agreed to take their call. He replied, I'm sorry for what I did to your brother, but I am also sorry for all of the people killed on 9-11. Rana somehow found the compassion to not react to the second part of that and say, That is the first time that I've heard you say you feel sorry. Roke answered, Yes, I am sorry for what I did to your brother. One day when I go to be judged by God, I will ask to see your brother, and I will hug him, and I will ask him for forgiveness. Rana replied, We already forgave you. Here's how Kaur explains what she learned from that experience. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate. Because when we are free from hate, we see the ones who hurt us not as monsters, but as people who themselves are wounded, who themselves feel threatened, who don't know what else to do with their insecurity but to hurt us, to pull the trigger or cast the vote or pass the policy aimed at us. But if some of us begin to wonder about them, listen even to their stories, we learn that participation in oppression comes at a cost. 
It cuts them off from their own capacity to love. This was my second lesson in revolutionary love. We love our opponents when we tend the wound in them. Tending to the wound is not healing them. Only they can do that. Just tending to it allows us to see our opponents, the terrorist, the fanatic, the demagogue. They've been radicalized by cultures and policies that we together can change. I looked back on all of our campaigns and I realized that anytime we fought bad actors, we didn't change very much. But when we chose to wield our swords and shields to battle bad systems, that's when we saw change. I have worked on campaigns that released hundreds of people out of solitary confinement, reformed a corrupt police department, changed federal hate crimes policy. The choice to love our opponents is moral and pragmatic and it opens up the previously unimaginable possibility of reconciliation. But remember, it took 15 years to make that phone call. I had to tend to my own rage and grief first. Loving our opponents requires us to love ourselves. So, forgiveness, finding a way to be in conversation even with our opponents, isn't releasing them from accountability. It's not giving up on struggling, fighting, resisting, rebelling against an ideology we oppose. It is living out our own values to their fullest. It is, as Kor put it, tending the wounds, both theirs and ours the wounds that are so greatly and so dangerously dividing us these days. Dr. Brene Brown, social worker, researcher, author, and our second TED Talk divinity for this morning, approaches much this same challenge in her book that you heard Bill read from earlier. Now, I can only scratch the surface of this book so full of great information this morning, so I'll start by simply highly recommending it to you. Part of what she reveals, though, is how we as a society have been moving more and more into silos. We are segregating ourselves not just by race and ethnicity anymore, but also by societal and political ideology. We move geographically to live around people whose ideology largely matches our own. We interact on the web and social media with people of like mind. I know it's too hard to argue with those other ones. We attend churches or other communal institutions with folks who think and believe much like us. Conservatives watch the Fox Propaganda Network and progressives watch the Rachel Maddow Ultimate Truth and Journalistic Integrity Hour. 
Okay, that was a joke. The truth is, all of us are getting a lot of editorializing in our news. And yet, yet the data shows that we are lonelier than ever before. We have less of a sense of belonging the more we segregate ourselves with only the like-minded. Maybe that's because we never have to be challenged by a different perspective. Perhaps we have to go out into that wilderness and truly determine who we are, what we believe, what values we hold dearest, because otherwise all we have to do is go along with what the people with whom we already agree are saying. And if we haven't done the work of knowing who we truly are, we get triggered far too easily. We lose civility. We get on Facebook and spout simple slogans or share the humanizing post about our political opponents, which Brown notes diminishes our own humanity and drives us to feel even more isolated. We avoid having the substantive and much-needed conversations that might allow us to find reconnection, as Valerie said, reconciliation. Hell's bells, as my grandmother used to say, we avoid even being around those with whom we disagree. The problem is, my friends, these are our fellow human beings, our fellow citizens, and far too often they are our friends and our family members. The problem is, if we never have those difficult but civil conversations, we will never move forward. We will retreat more and more into our ideological bunkers until the fabric of society itself starts to become unraveled. I know I sometimes avoid these conversations because they can be so very, very difficult. I'm afraid I'll make mistakes. I'm afraid I'll get hurt. And that's why it made me feel so much better to hear my guru, Brene Brown, say she does much the same thing. I know it's a lot. So no, we'll go over no, it. it's like, it's like, you know, I don't know the answer to all of it. What I do know is, cause it's scary. It's scary for me. And you know, I have a, P, I have a bachelor's master's and PhD in social work. Yeah. Like I was trained in this language in these conversations. I've studied dehumanization for 10 years. Um, and still when I go do a Facebook live around something that's happening, I'm scared to death because here's what I know. I know that I'm not going to do it perfectly. Right. I know that not only the people who oppose my politics and my beliefs are going to come after me. But I know that the people who I believe that are my allies are going to come after me because I'm going to do it imperfectly. Yes. But opting out of opting out of speaking out because we may get criticized to me is the definition of privilege. Like, I don't really have to speak out because there are no crosses burning in my front yard. My kids seem pretty safe. You know, I'm not getting pulled over. I'm not, you know, everything seems fine. So to opt out because it's safe is what privilege is. And so the way I think we have the conversations is you stay grounded in your humility and curiosity. And you say, here's what I believe. 
Let me spare you coming back and telling me how imperfect it is by saying right up front. I know it's going to be imperfect, yeah. but I'm not going to let my imperfection move me away from the conversation because it's too important. And here's the thing that I live by. And here's the thing that I invite people to live by. At the end of the day, at the end of the week, and the end of my life, I want to be able to say that I contributed more than I criticized. And so if all you're doing is criticizing people who are trying to engage in conversations that heal and bring hope, shut up. Good advice, especially on social media. One more of my personal gurus in this area is Van Jones, human rights activist, attorney, CNN commentator, and author of another book I'd recommend, Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart, How We Come Together. He also offers much that is very, very helpful on this subject. Today, I want to share with you a story he told at a recent conference I attended. Jones told of visiting communities in West Virginia where they have to bring in freezer trucks on Friday nights because over the weekend, so many people die of opium overdoses that the morgues can't hold all of the bodies. Babies being born already addicted and then losing both of their parents. So Jones brought five leaders who had emerged from the 1980s crack epidemic in his community in Los Angeles with him to West Virginia to work with five leaders there. He says that was really difficult because when drugs were ravaging his community, it wasn't treated as a public health issue. It was treated as a crime issue with brutality and imprisonment. They began by sharing pictures of people each of them had lost. And out of that common pain came a common purpose. They forged relationships across their differences and their divides. I want to let him tell you about something that happened while they were there. Two true stories about that before I move on. One is, one of the African-American women... And one of the white guys kind of started getting a little flirty. <laughs> they didn't think we noticed. They were getting a little flirty. They kind of started talking a little bit longer than was necessary given the questions they were paired up to ask. And he's a widower. And I was like, hey. So I said, this is getting a little bit interesting. Um, you know, because FaceTime works in West Virginia. So I said, this could be interesting, but let me, let me test this out. So I asked the question. This is very nice. But why'd y'all vote for Donald Trump? <gasps> y'all vote for Donald Trump? You vote for Hillary Clinton? And the whole thing devolved into chaos. <laughs> it was just bedlam yelling and screaming and cussing and fussing and I though I mean just they, and I was just so happy you know because you know <laughs> and right when it looked like the whole thing was going to be completely over a complete disaster I raised my hand and said okay so you voted one way you vote the other what are we going to do about these babies what are we going to do about these babies So I've been alive a long time. I've never seen a bird fly with only a left wing. 
Never seen a bird fly only with the right wing. It takes two wings to fly. What are we going to do about these babies? And they began to realize right in front of me that in that room was a potential to get the attention of both Nancy Pelosi and the Trump White House right there. That those people, because of their differences, had more power together than they ever would have apart. Because, not despite, because of their differences. And the little flirty couple just <laughs> looked at the white dude. She said, I'm still going to leave you. <laughs> and he said, you'll be back. <laughs> True story. And um, you see what happens when we talk to each other, not about each other? This is hard. But it's not that hard. It's hard. But it's not that hard. The biggest danger that we face is becoming what we're fighting. The biggest danger we face is becoming what we're fighting. But how do we avoid that? How do we engage with civility even when those whom we disagree are not always so civil toward us? Well, there are no easy answers. It's difficult even for these folks with far more experience than I have. All three say it's hard. All three also say it is absolutely necessary. Here's a few thoughts. Brene Brown says that people are hard to hate close up. So move in. Get to know them. Engage. In possibly the best book chapter, chapter title of all time, she also writes, Speak truth to bullshit. Be civil. <laughs> Folks, we can hold people accountable without using personal attacks. We can hold fast to our values without dehumanizing others. No shaming, no name-calling, no putting other people down. We can listen and reflect back to people what we thought we heard them saying. We can ask, can I tell you how that makes me feel or can I tell you how I understand this? Val Kaur talks about how we first need to be in a, a community of loving folks to help us take care of ourselves. And then she talks about approaching others with a sense of curiosity and wonder. She talks about the power of stories, sharing our stories, listening deeply to their stories. Stories, she says, can create the wonder that turns strangers into brothers and sisters. Van Jones speaks of searching for common ground, not the mushy middle ground, but true shared interest. He talks about how he is working with conservatives such as Newt Genrich on issues such as our criminal justice system, the addiction crisis, and creating high-tech and clean-tech jobs. But it is difficult. Finding compassion, much less love, for those who might harm us is gut-wrenchingly hard, I know. 
As a gay person, I am one of the targets. Certainly, none of us should try to engage in any situation where we might be at risk for physical harm. I don't have all the answers. None of us do. I do know this, though. I know we have to try. I know we will never build the beloved community if we disconnect from, leave out 30% or more of our population. I know we have to build a new way. After the last presidential election, I found myself needing to have this kind of conversation with my mom. She gave me permission to share this story with you. She had voted for Donald Trump. I had posted some things on social media that were strongly worded. Our relationship had become strained. We were avoiding the topic. You know what, though? It's hard for love to flourish when pain has been left unspoken. So we agreed to talk. We set ground rules. Each of us, in turn, would talk about our perspectives on the election and its aftermath. No interrupting. No arguing. No trying to convince the other person of anything at all. And it was difficult. And it was holy. And the ground beneath us and between us shifted as if God had entered that room and held both of us as we moved through this difficult but ultimately loving conversation. My beloveds, we can do this. It will be difficult at times, but we can build that new way. We can build the revolutionary loved community. And amen to that. Now please join me in saying our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. We are bound together in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words still ring true and powerful today. And that means that even as we leave this sanctuary today, our work together to help build the beloved community goes on. As we work for justice that can transform both the lives of others and our own. Likewise, the courage community, and compassion we experience here at this church go with us also. May the congregation say amen, amen. and blessed be. blessed be. Go in peace. Go with love.
This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.